Good morning and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Market School. My name is Ben Floyd and I will your host for today. Today we're joined by David Duong, our Head of Institutional Research, Greg Sutton and Tammy Yao, two CES sales traders, and Sitchikar, a senior blockchain researcher who helps understand what's happening in DeFi and so much more. Please keep in mind this call was recorded on the 6th of December at 11.30 and prices may have moved if you're watching it later on in the day. Now to our agenda, we'll kick off with Tammy to give a, a crypto market update. David then runs through what's happening in the macro side of things. Greg reports on what's going on on the exchange and our desk and also runs through what's happening with Basis. And then lastly, Sid wraps up with all things DeFi that's been going on. And there's been a lot this week, so definitely tune in to that part. But without further ado, Tammy, over to you. Thanks, Ben. BTC and ETH are ending the week in the green taking a breather after a couple of weeks of decline. David will cover the macro side in more details. But last week, we saw a slew of better-than-expected data coming out of the US, like Friday's payroll and the growth of US service providers, both of which may support the case for continued rate hikes by the Fed and higher terminal rates. But despite that, crypto markets have traded only marginally weaker. PTC is still 3% higher compared to seven days ago, while ETH is about 4% higher after both data releases. This resilience could be a sign that there might be very few sellers left and we could be near the bottom. While the markets still feel like they are anxiously awaiting further news of contagion, it does seem like the initial panic seen immediately post-FTX has subsided a little. Liquidations have been relatively calm in the past couple of weeks, with the only noticeable action occurring on November 19th and 20th with $150 million worth of long liquidations across Bitcoin and ETH. According to the blog, BTC spot volumes have been recovering slightly, while volumes for ETH are lagging for now. And this divergence in volumes between the two suggests that we could be seeing a small return of longer-term BTC accumulation. Outside of that, other than the initial spike in trading activity right after the collapse, volumes have been quite compressed this month. Thanks, Tim. That's great. So... I mean, what do you think here? Because uh, it seems like the markets are pretty quiet. Do you think that's just year-end, lower liquidity? Like, what's your take? Yes, I do think the year-end could be one reason why the markets are so quiet. Firms have been trimming their risk going into year-end, and many clients have also chosen to de-risk their positions first post-FTX while they wait for the credit events to play out. Looking ahead, I do think the market is going to be quiet for quite some time. After the loss of Alameda, which was a major investor, and also the primary liquidity provider for many altcoins, liquidity did get hit significantly for the alts. Even for the market makers who are still around, many of them have incurred losses post-FTX and their risk appetite got impacted, which resulted in wider spreads and stricter risk limits. All of this may put investors off from trading in the near term, so it's very likely that we see lower volumes for the rest of the year at least. Also, it seems like uh, you know, a lot of people are talking right now about a Santa Claus rally, Oftentimes, we see this tendency for markets to rally into year-end, but I don't know if the conditions are necessarily there at the moment. Uh, I mean, do you think people should be optimistic? Uh, do you think this is going to actually happen uh, this month as well? I don't know, to be honest. I certainly hope we'll see one. But just going by October's U.S. savings rate that recently came out at a 17-year low a few days ago, I think it might be tough for the markets to see that kind of exuberance, even if it's Christmas. So what's happening in the DeFi and altcoin space at the moment? In DeFi, the DeFi Pulse Index is in the green after CME announced plans last week to introduce reference rates and real-time indices for Aave, Curve, and Synthetics. 
Although it's still worth noting that this is just a launch of indices and not futures products, it does indicate a growing interest in DeFi tokens beyond the major. Not all is rosy in DeFi though. Last week, we also saw the attack of Anchor, with hackers making a nice profit of 15.5 million Binance dollars. Sid will cover this in more detail in the later section. In all, Xfinity Infinity's AXS token, together with other Metaverse tokens, have surged this week, with XC surging over 20% over the past 24 hours. And this is after XC announced on Monday that it has selected a team of 700 community members to help build out the future of XC Infinity. Next, Phantom is also up more than 25% after the Phantom Foundation released financial records, showing that the foundation generates consistent profits and has a 30-year runway without having to sell any Phantom tokens. Lastly, DEX token GMX rallied almost 25% week on week after beating Uniswap on trading fees for the first time. While DEXs have generally benefited from the shift away from centralized exchanges post-FTX, and with DEX trading volumes doubling in November, GMX got a higher boost in trading volumes than Uniswap because its token holders can receive a portion of all trading fees. And, and what else do you think is making the market rally this week? How, how did market take the plethora of interviews we had from the SBF slash FTX uh, media tour? Do, do you think that's a reason at all? Yeah, so SBF did do a whole media tour and also joined a conversation on Twitter spaces. He seemed to be speaking to the media against the advice of his lawyers. The markets didn't seem to react much to his comments though, as they seemed to be structured around a narrative that he wanted to convey while avoiding many key questions. Another hot topic last week was Sol's developer count. The number of Solana active developers has dropped significantly since February this year, and is now at a new low since April last year. And this is an important metric because Solana used to have one of the most developers in the ecosystem, which was a key indicator of a blockchain's growth potential. Lastly, a quick news roundup. Fidelity Investments launches Bitcoin and Ether trading for retail users and is offering commission-free trading of Bitcoin and Ether. Fees are instead baked into the BitR spread. Next, Telegram, which is an instant messaging platform, is planning to build decentralized exchanges and non-custodial wallets so that owners of these wallets have full control of their private keys and their crypto assets. Lastly, Stripe announced a fiat to crypto on-ramp to make payments easier for Web3 companies by allowing their customers to exchange dollars for crypto, while Stripe handles the fraud, compliance, and KYC checks in the back end. That's all from me on the macro update. Back to you, Ben. Thanks so much, Tammy. Now, David, we've had a few quiet tow weeks from a macro perspective, but things are starting to hot up again. Um, what, what's going on your side? Yeah, I'd say there's a few things to talk about in the macro space. There's the China reopening story, which is happening again post-protests. People are paying attention to disinflation, the less hawkish Fed. Of course, uh, we mentioned last week the three-month 10-year curve is inverted, and there's a little bit of uh, talk about trade wars on the side, although that seems to be getting resolved. You know, I would say that from my perspective, uh, the Fed, of course, remains the most important story going into next week, where we get both the inflation print as well as the FOMC meeting. Already, we did see a hint coming from the Wall Street Journal. There was an article published uh, this week suggesting that uh, Powell could actually remain somewhat hawkish. Uh, so that kind of uh, contravenes some of what was said last week 
when he was kind of suggesting they were going to ease the pace of hikes from 75 basis points to 50 basis points. But we were kind of on that view anyway. Like, I, I think that the markets kind of misinterpreted this. I don't think that he was actually trying to strike a dovish tone last week. I think, in fact, Powell still believes that there are a lot of permanent kind of sticky aspects of inflation and that he still needs to kind of combat this. So my expectation is that right now it's suggested that the terminal rate is going to be above 5%. Uh, you know, markets are probably going to need to correct to that. I would guess, though, that for the kind of coming year end already, it seems like markets have been pricing in too much in terms of the disinflation story. You know, we've seen even on the crypto side of things that, you know, uh, on in terms of volatility and other things, we've come down fairly sharply from 100 vol down to like 40, 50 vols. You know, if we look at the 25 delta one month skew, for example, you know, that's kind of normalized from like 40 percent, 35 percent around the time of the FTX debacle down to 12 percent, which is just under the six month average. You know, I, I just think that if anything, it's time to actually start positioning for, you know, some volatility, especially ahead of that CPI print. That's a really good point, David. There was a piece out by Usman Ayi, my head of derivative sales and agency trading yesterday that spoke through how potentially the market isn't positioned defensively enough. And to your point around vol kind of decreasing, the implied move now of uh, the um, CPI print is only 6.7%. Um, and given where we've come from and what's been happening, he felt that that was potentially a little bit on, on the low side. I guess what else are we looking at there that we should be concerned about? Is, is the terminal rate that people are expecting uh, at the end of the next year, is that potentially too low as well? You know, we've seen that increase now from 110 base points to 160 base points. So we're certainly moving that direction where the market's trying to correct the expectations here. Um, I think we're getting closer to actual uh, matching with the reality. But I think where people keep getting it wrong is this expectation that the Fed is going to pivot at any point in time. So we're constantly in this mess of like trying to interpret bad news as good news because it means there's the potential for the Fed transition from their uh, position of being hawkish to, to slightly less hawkish or even dovish. Uh, and I don't think that we're there yet. You know, I really think that when it comes to the Fed, which really means Powell, and I think that his view is kind of really dominant here, you know, like I think that he's still fairly hawkish as far as his expectations are concerned with regards to inflation. And they might be right. Like, I, I think markets keep expecting that inflation is going back to 2%. And I really don't think that's going to be the case. I think next year we'll probably see that inflation will come down. I'm not arguing that we haven't seen the peak. But even if it's not at the seven handle, it probably could be 4%, maybe 5% next year, which definitely doesn't necessarily scream mission accomplished to me as far as the Fed is concerned. So I don't really expect that they're going to take their foot off of this at the moment. You know, I think that they're going to continue trying to do this. Now, then the question really becomes, well, when do we see the recession? And if we see that, will we see the Fed finally kind of change its stance? You know, I think that it's really difficult to say. We don't really have a good read in terms of the timing of when a U.S. economic recession is going to actually materialize. Greg, I know you look at macro super closely. Like, what are your thoughts? Are you, you've been a little bearish in the past. Are you, are you still bearish or uh, a little more balanced now? So I think, um, yeah, I agree with David. I don't think there's going to be a, a Fed pivot. Um, to me, a pivot means you go in one direction and then you immediately start moving in another direction. And uh, that's very unlikely just, you know, given how uh, sticky inflation has been. Um, Risk assets, just general risk assets, I still 
think look, um, you know, pretty expensive uh, equities. We talked last week, the equity risk premium is, uh, you know, the lowest it's been in, in quite some time. Uh, the question for crypto, though, is, is what's priced in here? So risk assets had this big rally in November. Um, and crypto obviously didn't really participate because we were hit with this idiosyncratic risk, uh, you know, in FTX. And I think it's, you know, a, a, you can make the argument that had that not happened, you know, ETH, for instance, would be at 2000. Now it's not, it's at 1200. So, you know, what does that mean? You know, is that basically that discount, is that priced in, um, you know, all of the risks that we're talking about on the horizon? And I think it may be. Um, and the reason is this, like, who is the marginal seller at this point? If you didn't sell during the UST Luna debacle uh, over the summer, and then you didn't sell uh, after FTX declared bankruptcy, you know, I think you're probably indifferent between BTC being 17,000 or 15,000 or even 12,000. Um, so I would say I'm pretty constructive actually on the crypto complex and, and bearish uh, when talking about just general risk assets. Yeah, I, I totally agree there. I, I guess if we look at um, what we're seeing from the mainstream media, indifference, as you said, is, is definitely kind of where they're becoming. I, I think uh, Jim, Jim Cramer originally came out and was calling uh, to sell uh, to sell digital assets now that like there's still some value there. And I think having looked back at a few cycles, it's typically that time where there, there's apathy, there's just lack of interest, there's kind of selling when things are down 80, 75, 80% is, is often like a bit of a turning point. So kind of curious to see where we where we go from there. And actually one thing I just want to, uh, a bit of a narrative that's going around crypto is, is Litecoin. So while this as an asset necessarily hasn't been quite as interesting as Ethereum and Bitcoin and, and others, there was an interesting report from Delphi yesterday talking through the outperformance that it's had post the FTX, FTX bankruptcy, and it's outperformed the market by 57%. Now, many of you in the space are going to be familiar with halvenings, uh, which is where the distribution of assets is each per, per block is halved, and it happens once every four years. But this, this trade has been quite common, and it has been quite a popular one in, in the past, and it seems to be playing out, out again. So yeah, we're interested to watch Litecoin and, and how that develops into the halvening. Uh, I think last time this happened, it peaked a, a few months before the actual halvening, which is in August of, uh, of next year. So one, one to keep an eye on. And, and Sid, you've obviously you've been around, you've been through a few cycles. How does this feel to you at this point? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing the uh, chatter all over the place. You know, even recently, Jim Cramer came out and say, said that you know, sell all your crypto. Um, uh, you know, we've been seeing this for the past few weeks, which is essentially unending amounts of FUD leading from the catalyst from, you know, FTX onwards, but, you know, several, several weeks of it actually, uh, of folks just saying, you know, it's over for crypto, uh, you know, at the end of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And we've seen this kind of uh, narrative play out before as well in the depths of 2018, uh, you know, when it was low volatility, the doldrums were there, uh, there wasn't much to speculate on, et cetera. Um, and uh, if you've known one thing in crypto, it's that it's extremely asymmetric in terms of how volatile its cycles are. And it's either the end of the world or it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, um, you know, in relation to the Litecoin event also, there's probably also a core group of crypto uh, OGs, so to speak, who trade these assets uh, regardless of the market. Um, so 
one thing to point out, actually, even over this past week, Dash, uh, another kind of OG currencies, also went up 15% along with Litecoin, uh, despite no obvious catalyst uh, coming up for it. So it seems to be that there's a basket of kind of OG currencies um, that are held and traded and are actively uh, enthusiastic, uh, by, you know, regarded as in an enthusiastic fashion by, by a core group of holders. Interesting. And, and taking a, a positive stance there. So there was Reuters reported today that Goldman were, were looking at potential acquisitions in, in the space. That's definitely something we didn't have in previous cycles. Goldman certainly weren't looking to acquire assets in, in crypto that were potentially trading at discounted prices. Greg, curious, uh, curious kind of your thoughts on that one. And, and I guess what, what might be interesting potentially. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's hugely positive that, uh, you know, Goldman and, and other banks are still very interested in getting involved in crypto. And I think it really speaks to the underlying technology. Um, you know, correlations have, uh, you know, broken down a bit between crypto and traditional assets. And again, I think that's because of, um, you know, FTX and, and that debacle that we all just had to live through and, and continue to live through. Um, but seeing, you know, Goldman uh, look for acquisitions, seeing JP Morgan do their first DeFi trade, you know, what that means to me is, you know, when the macro picture does improve and people do start going further out the risk curve, uh, this space is, is likely to take off uh, much quicker than it has in, in past cycles. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's totally fair. And what was what the time going on in, in DeFi and, and CeFi as well? I just want to touch upon CDeFi, so centralized DeFi, and, and there's a, a small group of players that fit into that category. Maple is one of them, and, and they had a were affected by the contagion of, of FTX. Greg, just while you're there, would love to kind of hear your thoughts on that one, because I know there's been people that have lost money there and, and to try and help explain that situation a little better. Yeah, so, I mean, it's really a, a sad situation. Um, so Maple is one of the few under collateralized lenders in the DeFi space. So unlike Aave or Compound, where you over collateralize your position, uh, with Maple, it's like, you know, going to a bank and, you know, they take a look at the borrower and they'll give you money based on, you know, a credit score that they assign to you. Um, and unfortunately, one of the borrowers, Orthogonal Trading, uh, wasn't being forthcoming with their uh, financial situation um, and ended up defaulting on a, um, uh, on a part of the loan. So, you know, it obviously hit the protocol very hard. Um, I think... It's, it's going to be interesting because under collateralized lending is huge. Most of the lending that happens in the world is under collateralized. Um, so, you know, DeFi has to figure out how to make this work, you know, whether it can work as seamlessly as the over collateralized lending platforms, um, you know, that we all love to point to, uh, like the Aves and compounds remains to be seen because at the end of the day, there's, there's credit risk, right? And at the end of the day, you don't always get paid back. Um, as we're learning. Yeah, I've got to think there's, there's going to be a way that we'll figure this out. And the benefits of, of transparency and seeing things on change should be able to mean that you can write better credit. I, when, when I get a loan from the bank, like they kind of, they might ask for proof of earnings and all that sort of stuff, but it's ultimately, it's, it's a letter and, and those systems aren't perfect. Whereas if you can figure out identity, you can figure out signing things on chain. I feel like we're going to get there eventually. We're definitely not there right now, but I'd be disappointed if over the next two years, we didn't get to a point where we leveraged the transparency of the chain. We created identity protocols, which, which kind of linked in with that. 
and we could get to uncollateralized lending. Sid, I know that's an area that your DeFi is an area that you know super, super well. Is, is there anything particularly interesting you're looking at now that, that might help there? Yeah, uh, particularly some of the uh, developments in the ZK space where uh, folks can prove that they own a certain amount of assets without actually revealing what kind of assets, how much, et cetera, um, and you know, what they've done with those assets, uh, you know, their financial transactions. So they can maintain some level of privacy, but also prove that they're credit worthy. Um, of course, we're yet to see sophisticated applications come up on these new um, protocols and layers. Uh, we are seeing the, the base protocol level gaining some adoption, but there's still applications to harness them uh, that have yet to come up. So let's see how that develops. Yeah, definitely, definitely one to watch. Now, I just want to transition on to flows. Uh, Greg, what's been going on? Have we been seeing institutions diving into Litecoin as, uh, as this hardening trade plays out? Um, haven't seen Litecoin, uh, but you know, generally speaking, Volumes continue to be lower than average and declining. And I think that speaks to uh, you know, that apathy that you mentioned earlier. Um, the asset mix also really hasn't changed much from last week. You know, ETH and BTC dominate as we would expect them to. Uh, retail continues to be very interested in Dogecoin and all that is going on at Twitter. Um, you know, on the CES desk, uh, there are some bright spots, though. Uh, when we look at what certain client segments are doing, a good number turned net buyer last week. You know, traditional hedge funds, crypto hedge funds, traditional VCs, private wealth, they were all on the buy side in pretty decent size. Uh, on the sell side, we had crypto VCs, uh, among others. Now, you may recall in weeks past, I mentioned how these crypto native VCs um, were actually buying in really good size. So I think, you know, this could just be a situation where they completed what they needed to do. I'm not sure that we can read too much into them, um, you know, slowing their purchases down, especially because those uh, folks tend to have very long time horizons, you know, five, eight years. Um, so it's unlikely that anything changed um, in their investment profile. Um, Greg, I'm just then, curious, um, just while we've got you, there, there was a lot of uh, interest in uh, kind of basis and also uh, GBTC trades where, where people were, were getting short BTC and funding rates were, were trading higher as a result. Uh, are we seeing uh, much of anything there at all? So, yeah, basis has calmed down quite a bit. Um, you know, November basis, which was obviously rolled off, that was as wide as 100% annualized at one point and then, you know, traded around 30, 40% for, for quite some time. Uh, December basis, short basis is now around 5%. Um, so, you know, it looks like the market's still slightly net short, but, you know, it's not as outsized as it was a few weeks ago. We're also seeing the same in PERP funding rates, um, you know, still slightly negative, but but starting to normalize, which, um, you know, is one indication that, that shorts are starting to close their positions. Yeah, and on exchange volumes, obviously we're a centralized entity here, but there was some big news out of some of the DEXs or Sushi specifically this week about a distribution of fees. Sid, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you mind just running us through what was announced there? Yeah, uh, so uh, essentially the Sushi Swap, uh, how it operates currently is uh, a proportion of uh, all trading fees are, are paid to the liquidity providers themselves. And then a portion of that is then funneled to this uh, separate pool called XSushi, where folks who stake sushi uh, receive a portion of those fees uh, in the form of more sushi. Um, and um, 
the sushi is effectively bought out of the market by using the, the trading fees of all the pairs in the decks. And uh, the, there was a governance proposal for the protocol to shut off this kind of uh, fee distribution to sushi stakers and instead funnel that uh, those fees to the DAO and to the team effectively to sustain itself because they argued that their treasury was running low and they needed to uh, fund the team development efforts. This is an interesting development because this is one of the key features that differentiated SushiSwap from Uniswap in the initial days uh, where, you know, stakers could actually derive value for the token in, you know, kind of a, a dividend format. And uh, it's interesting that this is happening now because at the same time in Uniswap, there's a discussion that's happening uh, live around turning on the fee switch, uh, which has been something that's been going on for quite a while. But folks are now debating that in the in the governance forums, whether it's a positive or a negative, uh, because, you know, while it will result in revenue generation for the protocol in excess of $14 million per year at current uh, trading volumes, um, people are arguing that, you know, the profitability of being a liquidity provider may go down. And even as in the case of SushiSwap, it's not uh, one size fits all. Uh, just because you provide value for the token doesn't mean necessarily that the protocol itself is more, uh, you know, reliable or, or, or resilient to market changes. Thanks for that, Sid. So this will be the first time that we're seeing protocols distribute fees to the holders of the token. And there's a few others that we might have a read across there too. So like Uniswap, Lido, Aave, Compound. David, I know you look at some of these. I'm curious to your thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, currently we're not seeing that uh, there's any value accrual from fees going to any of these protocols. Uh, it's certainly something I think from an institutional perspective that uh, we were kind of watching out for because you know, if we can actually depend on some kind of form of revenues that you can kind of factor into your models, that makes the value proposition a lot easier, valuations easier to kind of model and manage. Um, but I think that uh, what we kind of seen from, uh, you know, this development is that it's still pretty hard because it kind of goes against the whole treasury management situation. Um, you know, I think like a lot of these protocols haven't figured out the balance yet between giving out value back to its token holders versus how much it actually needs in order to carry out development, paid to developers, things like that. Sid, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I want to add, add to that point uh, where it's actually, we're seeing an incredible uh, public learning experiment in DeFi right now, which is uh, how do you effectively incentivize a decentralized crowd of anonymous users uh, using these kind of incentives known as tokens, right? Um, you know, so Sushi is an experiment in rewarding uh, users a proportion of fees, while other tokens are experiments in pure governance, for example, uh, and whether that governance has a value and how do you value these assets, right? So um, there were actually efforts, even with SushiSwap, to model out tokenomics, this kind of evolving field of tokenomics, and uh, see how users would behave under certain incentives. And uh, we're seeing those kind of play out differently in a bear market, how our users actually behaving, right? So. We're actually going to learn tremendously from this, and I think the next era of apps uh, and how they design their tokens is going to be impacted by the learnings that we gain from this. Yeah, you, you almost don't want to be first, do you? you? You almost want to see others try things, learn from that, and then implement it at the right time. Sid, while you've got the mic, what else is going on in uh, DeFi this week? Yeah, a couple others, uh, kind of quick events. Uh, the Anchor protocol suffered an exploit, uh, unfortunately, on uh, several chains. So it started on the BNB, Binance Smart Chain, 
uh, where they had an upgrade for their token and uh, this allowed uh, exploiters to mint an arbitrary amount of A, B, and B tokens, which is a kind of sub-token for their protocol, uh, effectively allowing them to sell these tokens for real assets like Ethereum and, and stable coins. And so approximately $5 million was uh, exploited from this kind of vulnerability. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and there's quite a few uh, other uh, chains and protocols who potentially might be affected by similar vulnerability. So I think folks are actively trying to patch this up right now. So uh, we'll see, we'll be monitoring the situation pretty closely. Interesting. And is there a PSA there? Is there anything that we and, and other users should be doing to protect ourselves there? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, uh, DeFi Web3 best practices is to make sure uh, A, obviously self-custody and then also B, uh, see the kind of approvals you've given to uh, tokens and uh, and protocols and make sure that you want to be giving them the approvals to spend your tokens. So actually one event in Web3 that recently uh, uh, triggered some uninformed users to lose their funds was uh, the uh, going live of ApeCoin staking, um, which is another event that took place where you know we spoke about it last call where it potentially was leading the ape rally um, but it went live this week and effectively a mechanism that users didn't recognize was that when you uh or stake your ape coin and you also have a, a board ape nft when you sell your nft you also lose access to the stake, staked ape coin and so some uh thrifty arbitragers actually took advantage of this fact and uh, uh bought uh, ape nfts and then also unstaked users, uh, ApeCoin promptly sold it, uh, users who are not aware of this kind of linkage between the NFT and the staked ApeCoin. So it's always good to be aware of what's happening in protocols as they're doing upgrades, and then also aware of the approvals that you give these protocols to spend your tokens. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, there's so much complexity around all of these systems and uh, not everybody has the ability to read the code line by line by line. So unfortunately, there, there always seems to be some people that get hurt as you as, as these new things get launched but the next iteration is, is is always better typically so keep keep an eye on those as, as we go forwards um so i think that's a, a wrap for today everyone uh, thanks so much for dialing in thank you to david tammy sid and greg um, and thank you to those who have listened in as well if you have any feedback please let us know and otherwise have a, a great week and we'll keep an eye on the inflation data in the fed next week take care bye To view this episode and learn more, check out the Research Hub and follow us on Twitter at Coinbase Insto. Both links can be found in the podcast description. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as the giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.